I got to confess, you probably thought that I had done lost my mind last week. I'm up here preaching, going along, and you saw me start reaching and grabbing and got my phone and I kept talking to my... You didn't hear nothing, I find out later. Bluetooth hearing aids. I was the one hearing my phone going off, and you and, and it was shut off, but you people was out there saying, has he gone nuts? What in the world is going on here? Well, turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, we finally got through the first two. Uh, and even tonight, some of the, what we're saying, I, I, I'm taking a little extra time on this because in the chapters continuing, you're going to hear these same illustrations. Uh, and if, you, if you're not solid on what he's saying in the beginning, then you're not going to get exactly what he's saying later on. And it's going to take more time to go through it and try to explain it again. So I'm trying to explain some of these things a little bit in detail so that you can really get a hold of this. In chapter 3, let's begin just reading the first six verses here. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the, the apostle and high priest of our faith, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that buildeth built all things is God. For Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. As I first read that, I thought, boy, what in the world are you going to preach out of that? And boy, it started developing. And I'm back to four pages of notes again. Amen. There is just so much in here that later on it will carry through and you'll see some of this again. Um, I'm not much for outlines, especially when I go verse by verse, but Shane wanted an outline. So point number one, the consideration. <laughs> in verse number one, the consideration, he says, wherefore? He's basing the wherefore on what he has just finished saying in these last two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2. All that he has talked about, and we're not going to go back and rehash all that. We'd be here till Christmas, next Christmas. But he says, wherefore, based on what I've already taught you, what I've already showed you, he says, holy brethren, he's talking about the Jews those Jews that were separated unto God, those Jews that were, were saved, they'd put their faith in God. The term holy is the word hagios. It means 
to be set aside or set apart. We are called saints in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The word saints is the word hagios. It means to be separated. We are separated unto God. You don't have to do miracles or nothing. You just get saved and you're a saint. Amen. Now, because they were separated unto God by the, the, the Holy Ghost, that's why he calls them holy brethren. These are not talking about us. They're not talking about the church. Always keep in, rem in remembrance as you're going through the book of Hebrews, he's writing to the Hebrews. The Gentiles are never mentioned here. He's not talking about the church. You read commentaries, immediately they want to run to the church. These things can apply to us, but they are not written to us. Therefore, if you, if you start putting the church in there, you're going to skew the meaning and what he's actually saying. So understand that he is talking to the Jews. Those Jews in this particular chapter that have received Christ or they say they have received Christ. Because as we get towards the end, you'll find out he puts a condition on this thing. He said some of you probably aren't saved. And so we'll go through that. So understand who he's talking about and who he's dealing with here. But here he says, holy brethren, because they were separated uh, by the Holy Spirit, the Jews, their brothers in Christ now. He said they're partakers of the heavenly calling, those that have accepted the call of God for salvation. And notice I said the call of God. So many people Mess, mess up when they th start talking about the call. They think the call is for full-time service. Let me tell you something. Every one of you that are saved are already in full-time service. I just graded one of our students' papers uh, this morning. Uh, they're about ready to do their finals, and of course I'm teaching uh, online at, for California out there, and and the very first statement, ladies, sweet gal, but she put the first statement, we're all missionaries. No, we're not. If we was all missionaries, why did he have a special call for missionaries? You see, it doesn't make sense. We are all in full-time service. We are all supposed to be soul winners and, and witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has called some pastors. He has called some evangelists. That's what, where we get our term missionary from. We are not all evangelists. So don't get that, that false concept in your mind. When you get into the call, you have most of the time that the term call is used, it is for salvation. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. When he saved you, he's not changing his mind. That call of salvation is secure. He has a call for special service. That's where we get into the call of a pastor, call of a missionary, this type of thing. This, this, this call, understand, every one of you are in full-time service. I hate that term when people say, well, you're called in a full-time service. Every one of you are called in a full-time service. Go ye, 
into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's not just to the missionary. That's to every born-again Christian. We're all to be involved in that. So he comes to this point and he says, consider, consider. He really wants you to stop. He's two chapters telling us who Jesus is, what he has done, what he's trying to accomplish here. He's proving that he is better than man. He is better than angels. He is better than all the prophets and everything. So he comes to this point and he says, consider him. That's why I titled the message, Stop and Think. That's what we're supposed to do at this point here. We're supposed to stop and think. It means to observe fully his life, his purity, his faithfulness, his obedience, his glory, all about Christ that he has already taught us. He said, consider him. Notice he goes on and he says, the apostle and high priest of our profession. This matter of the high priest and the apostle, the apostle is, is a sent one. It's the same term where we get missionary from. We are sent ones. We are not here ones. We are sent ones. And that's why all of us aren't missionaries. All of us are not evangelists. All of us are not in that capacity of full-time service, but we are in full-time service here. So he is that ambassador, that messenger. He's also the high priest. And when you get into the high priest, boy, I had a good time with this. It took me three days on this word alone, the high priest. His duties as a high priest. One time every year, after he had made sure that he was clean. And I mean clean. Because when he would come into that holy of holies beyond that, that curtain, if he was not clean, God said that he would kill him. He would bring the blood for not only his own sins, but he would offer the sacrifice for the blood for the sins of the people of Israel, the whole nation. What a responsibility. One day every year on the Day of Atonement, he would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices for his own sins and the sins of the people. He also would preside over the Sanhedrin for judicial matters. He was, I mean, he was the top dog. He was the head in all this religious matters and, and all of the, let's say, the social matters also was there because it was a theocracy. He was the one that was in charge of everything. So then he presided over the Sanhedrin, but according to the Mosaic law, no one could become a high priest unless he was of the tribe of Levi and a descendant of Abraham. Not just anybody could become the high priest. That's according to the law of Moses. 
And the office of the high priest was a lifetime, I mean a, a real lifetime. You were there until you died. You were appointed for life until death. So let me ask you a question. Who's Israel's high priest today? They do not have one. Well, they have one. They just don't know who he is. <laughs> Ever since God rent that veil in half from the top to the bottom, the Jewish people have not had the sacrifices. Just a few years later, they come and destroy the temple completely. There is no high priest any longer. There is no sacrifice. So where is their blood of atonement or for atonement? They have none. How can they get their sins forgiven? As I went and started looking for some of these things and going on Jewish websites and all kinds of things and, and, and finding out what they say, uh, the Jewish teaching now is that God does not really require a blood sacrifice. It focuses on three things. If a person is poor, instead of a lamb, then they could bring two turtle doves. And if they were so poor they could not bring the, the, the turtle doves, then they could bring a handful of fine flour. Well, that was true but not for the high priest. That was true of the individual. If he was so poor, he could not offer even the doves, and that was for poor people. That's why you know that, that Joseph and Mary were poor because they offered the doves uh, as, as their sacrifice. But if all you had, you couldn't even offer two turtle doves, couldn't go catch a couple pigeons. All you had was one handful, the equivalent of one handful of flour. That was your sacrifice. And they say because of that, God did not require really, I mean really, 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 he didn't really require a blood sacrifice. Boy, they forgot to read the rest of the Bible, amen? Amen. And that's why later on in Hebrews he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And he got that from the Old Testament and the teaching from the Old Testament. And I have a thing about this long that I, that I would read, but I'm not going to be just for the sake of time because I think you, you probably got the gist of, of this whole thing. They are twisting the word of God to be able to continue their religious worship in contradiction to the, the Bible that they say they're upholding. There, are, there is no high priest. There is no sacrifice for them. They are breaking the law from the very beginning. So he comes and he says he's the high priest of our profession. 
Now notice he says our profession. Paul includes himself in this because Paul was a Jew. He's talking to the Jewish people. He says because of our profession. It's an individual choice. That profession means that confession of your faith. We say we believe in him, but subjectively, whom do we profess or believe in as our Savior? We can say with our mouth one thing, and you'll see that this is where he goes later on in the Scriptures. We profess one thing, but like politicians, do another. <laughs> they come before an election and they promise you the moon and they don't even give you a star. They don't give you anything but a bill. Objectively, we profess that he is our Savior, that he is God. We profess who he is, but he said this profession, our profession should actually be what we're doing. What we say should match what we do. Okay? We tell our kids the same thing. Uh, you know, I remember people saying, don't do what I say, do what I do. No, they said it the other way. Don't do what I do, do what I say. It's just as wrong. God says our profession, if he is our Savior, the, the high priest of our profession is Jesus Christ. He is God. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. And our profession must match our life. I remember over there in Africa, we had, a, you know, we had our church up on the second floor, and right below us was a restaurant. And boy, they'd start cooking that post-show and beans, and I'm telling you, you're just, you just start drooling. But one day I was down there just getting a, getting a soda or water or something, and this old drunk come in there. I mean, he couldn't hardly stand, and he's, he's holding on to everything, and, he noticed I was a white guy, so he figured I was a reverend. He said, Reverend, I love God too. I can say unequivocally that he does not. Why? Based on the scriptures. See, what you profess is what you will do. If you believe that I had a bomb and, and set it on the front seat uh, and you, you actually believed that, would you continue to listen to my preaching? You'd be out the front door, and rightly so. But if you really don't believe it, you might sit around a while and say, well, I wonder if it's going to go off or not. Well, when it goes off, then it's too late, but... The thing is, we have people professing to know Christ that have no concept of who he is, what salvation is, anything. And that's the way some of the Jewish people were. Remember, some of them have come from, for persecution of their faith, and they were being pressured to go back into Judaism. Some of them had 
maybe made professions, but they really weren't convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. They kind of liked this Christianity thing. And so they're kind of going along with the flow. You have others that are, they're sitting on the fence. You know, I, my wife got saved and, and we're up here because of her, but I'm just not sure. And, and they've heard the gospel, but they haven't made that commitment yet. They're sitting on the fence. And then you've got these guys over here. They're hardcore Jews. They don't want nothing to do with it, but their family has gone into exile. And they're going with them. So you have all of these groups here that he's addressing. And as he comes to this point, he said, listen, our profession, he's the high priest of our profession. What we believe and why we're doing what we're doing, why we're here in this position of being in exile, being run out of our homes and things. This is the context of what we're talking about here. Do, the, do they believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sin? It's one thing to say it, but if you're still, if, if I'm still running to the bars and still running with the hookers and doing all the things that I used to do before I got saved, it's bogus. I'm lying through my teeth. Why? Because my profession is not the same. It's just with the mouth. And you'll see where he goes with this here in a little bit. But he identifies who he's talking about, who the high priest and who the apostle is. And that is Jesus Christ, he says. Paul identifies who he's talking about. He identifies him as the apostle of God, the sent one of God. He identifies him as the high priest, the hop religious official that would bring Israel to God and offer that blood sacrifice on the altar for their atonement. He identifies him as the Messiah because when he said Jesus Christ, the word Christ is the, the Greek term for the Old Testament term Messiah. It's the same word, but it's just one is Hebrew, one's Greek. They're both Messiah. He was the Messiah. And he's identifying him as such. And then he identifies him as Jesus. God, the God-man that was rejected by men. Notice in verse number two, the faithfulness, the faithfulness. He says, who was faithful to him that appointed him? Now notice the semicolon there back after the word Jesus Christ. The thought from that continues on into verse number two the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who was faithful. Talking about Jesus Christ, he was trustworthy. He was true to him, to God, the one that appointed him. He was obedient to him. He was teaching what he said. He was doing the will of God while he was on this earth. And that's why over and over, back in chapter 1, we said, He came not to do His own will, but the Father's will. Because He was that schoolboy that was under the law 
until it was time that he was appointed heir of all things. So when he was appointed, it caused him to be made the high priest. At that point, he was made the high priest. This was an eternal appointment by God the Father to Jesus Christ. He was faithful, true to his duties as a, an apostle, true to his duties as a high priest. He would offer that sacrifice, that blood sacrifice, interceding on behalf of the people of Israel and for the people of the whole world as we know it. Notice he goes on in trying to explain this. He comes to this verse and he says, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. And I think, why would he throw that in there? Why didn't he just leave it with Jesus? Because this speaks of his position, his responsibility, the magnitude of the task that he had before him. Moses was their hero. He was their golden boy. He was the one they always looked to. Whenever they tried to find fault with Jesus, they'd always say, well, Moses said this. When he's talking about divorce, he said, well, now Moses said we could do this. They always went back to Moses. He was their hero. In Numbers chapter 12 and verse number, number 6, he said, he's talking about Miriam and Aaron questioning and challenging Moses' authority. And he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I the Lord will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. And he continues on. He said, I'll speak to him mouth to mouth. He said, Moses was different than the other prophets. Moses was the golden boy. He was their hero. And what he is doing here, as he's already showed them that Jesus is higher and greater than the angels. He is higher and greater than the prophets. Now he comes to this point and he is saying that the position, the responsibility, the magnitude of his task is much greater than your hero, Moses. The whole house of Israel was committed to Moses. But think of the magnitude and the responsibility of the task that was set before him. Moses had to, had to take a, a control of all Israel. He had a couple million folks there. Jesus was responsible for the whole world. Every soul that has ever lived or ever will live was under his responsibility. Moses was a faithful prophet of the law. But Jesus was a faithful apostle of grace. Moses was a faithful leader, but Jesus was the great high priest. Moses had an earthly calling, but Christ had a heavenly calling. Moses sinned, but Jesus Christ was sinless. No wonder 
we're told to consider him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse number three, he said, we talk about the glory, the glory. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He starts making this comparison. He's proving a point to Israel. He's going to take their golden boy and he's going to take him from up here on the pedestal and he's going to put him down here on the floor where he belongs, where we all belong. And he's going to put Jesus Christ up there on that pedestal. So he said he's worthy. There's a comparison here between Moses, the servant, and Jesus, the son. Moses, a sinner that needed salvation, and Jesus that was the perfect Savior that sinned not. Moses was a stone in the house, but Jesus created all the stones that built the house. God used him to lead Israel from the Egyptians, but yet God delivered them. Moses led them to the Red Sea, but God took them through the Red Sea. Moses carried the tables of stone down the mountain, but God gave them the law. Moses put the pieces of the tabernacle together, but God is the one that gave them the plan. Moses walked with them through the desert, but God is the one that in a fiery pillar by night and the cloud by day led them every step of the way. Moses brought them to the border of Canaan. God says, that's it, full stop, ain't going a step further. And God killed him. He died on that mountain. He never made it into the promised land. Moses died, but God continued on. He says, insomuch as he who builded the house hath more honor than the house. He used the analogy here of a builder, and we all understand buildings and what goes on, and we might not know all the, the little nuances of what building is right and the codes and all that, but we know how to build. What is greater, he says, the creator or the creation? Who's greater, the potter or the clay that the vessel is made out of by the potter? It's obvious. It's, it's an unanswerable question. You don't need to answer it. It's obvious. The creator. And that's what he's just said here. He said, I want you to think about this. Who builded the house or had more honor than the house? He's already established back in chapter 1 that Jesus Christ was the creator of the world. And so now he comes back and, and, and talks about this. The Lord is the architect and the builder of everything. But Moses, he was just over Israel. He says in Hebrews 1.10, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. He establishes that and he comes back and he's pointing them back to what he's already said there. And he says, then we get to the position in Hebrews 3, 4. 
For every house is builded by some man. Common sense and basic human reasoning. God gave us a brain, uh, not just for a hat rack, but he wants us to use our brain. Uh, there is a thing called common sense. And, and much of what God does is common sense. It's basic things that he, human reasoning he's using here. The house doesn't build itself. Some man has to build that house. The truth in these verses are a powerful argument for the deity of Jesus Christ. Because if he built all things and Jesus built God's house, which he says here, then Jesus Christ must be God. And this is what he's trying to get across to those Hebrews who are having doubts about all of this stuff and not sure should they put their faith in him or no. He is the builder of these houses. He says it, but he that buildeth all things is God. God alone creates the house, and he continues to build that house, building it as new believers are added, one brick at a time. Every one of us are like a stone put in the wall. And somebody gets saved, Another stone is added to God's building. You see the analogy all the way through here. Human witnesses, what we are, we're nothing more than tools or instruments that God uses to fulfill the building of his, his building. He is that builder. This is where I think a lot of times you see churches, they build up and they build up and they build up and now they start becoming almost a megachurch and stuff. And what happens? Many of those pastors fall. Why? They forgot who the builder was. They, th they get to thinking, I'm the one to build this. I'm the one that put this thing together. I'm the one that keeps this thing running. I'm the one that makes these wise decisions. Wrong. It's God. God's the one who got this building here. God's the one who gave us our pastor. God's the one that has put all of these different people, and if you're looking from where I'm looking, every one of you is different. Now, different in that you're different than somebody else. <laughs> well, no, you might, no, anyway. And when you put all of us together, how in the world do we, send a hundred and some thousand dollars overseas to missions, build, put funds in the building. I don't know how much we had come in, but we already had 20,000 in the building fund and people are still tithing and all of this and none of us are rich. How did he do that? We've got to understand, folks, it is God. It is not us. We are simply a brick or a stone in that wall. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, God said. Now, in verse number 5, he says, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house. All right, Jesus is building his house, but he says, Moses was faithful in all his house. Faithful. 
means to be firm in adherence to whatever or whoever one owes allegiance. To whoever we owe allegiance. Faithful. Was that old drunk? Faithful? To one, the one he had allegiance to. That's why he said in Romans 6, to whom you yield yourself, to him. That's who you're, you're servant to. So as what, what we do, he's saying, and, and he's going to show these people that this is serious stuff here. He, they've got to be faithful. He said to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold the hands which reach hither thy hand and thrust it in my side and be not faithless but believing. The word believing is pistos. It means to be faithful. He said, but the Lord is faithful who shall establish and keep you from evil. He is faithful. But notice he says, as a servant. Moses was no more than a servant. He was only the clay. He was only a tool. He was only a man. He says, for the testimony of those things which were to be spoken after, it's a guarantee of the trustworthiness of the things of God that God spoke to him about. What he said was true because God gave him what to say. But Moses is an example of the faithfulness to the Jews throughout their history. And now Jesus refers to Moses as he has several times and he will even after his resurrection. In John 5, 46, he said, For he had believed Moses. Ye would have believed, if ye had believed Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote of me. He said in Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, In the beginning of Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them, all that the scriptures, the things concerning himself. All mo mo what Moses wrote was about Jesus Christ. Now the admonition in verse number six. But Christ as a son, not a servant. Christ as a son over his own house. He is the one that has the house. The house here is just a metaphor frequently used throughout the Bible. It's used for the children of Israel, describes his people. A son in his own house is greater than the servant that serves the master in the house. Moses is a servant in God's house, but Christ is our son or the, the son over the house. That's why in Hebrews 1, 2, he says, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath done what? Appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Boy, does he establish this thing that he is so much greater than Moses, whose houses we are as the Son and work as high priest involved position and duties that Moses never had. Thus the Messiah is better than Moses. And the covenant that he brings is a better covenant, a better place, a better sacrifice than the one that Moses was involved with. Now notice this last thing and we'll finish with this. 
the little word if. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. The word if is in. It's formed by combining e, ei, and it's a conditional principle of meaning if, condition. But then it's attached to an, and it's a particle denoting supposition, a wish or possibility, something that is uncertain. The if in the Greek text introduces the future unfulfilled, a hypothetical situation here. The writer proposing this is a condition that's yet unfilled. The security of the believer is not in question here. Some people come to this verse and say, well, if we don't hold fast the profession of faith, we lose our salvation. That, that's not the issue here. That's not the context. That's not where he's going. That's not what he's been talking about. He's been talking about the house. He's been talking about your profession of faith. So he's writing to young believers here under persecution. It is not the retention of salvation that is in question, but the possession of salvation. Are you in fact saved? The purpose of writing the epistle to Hebrews was to reach those that had outwardly left the temple sacrifices and they'd identified themselves with Christianity. They made a profession, but they were suffering from this persecution from Judaism and they were trying to force them to go back into the Judaistic sacrifices and rituals. So Paul here, and I believe he's the writer, but he, what he's doing is he's saying, look, if, you, if he is your high priest, if he is that great apostle, if he is your profession, you must stand fast. Because if you don't, that shows reality. It shows reality. Standing fast would show that they were saved. And if they turned back, then that would indicate that they'd never been saved. People say, well, I, I, don't, I don't really, where do you, where you get all this? Throughout the scriptures, 1 John 2, 19, says they went out from us, but they were not all of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. God allows trials, God allows our flesh, whatever, to come in. And if we, through the lust of our flesh, and we take off over here and we end up denying Jesus Christ and everything, people say, well, they lost their salvation. No, they never had it. They never had it. And that's what he's saying. He said, look, I know you're being persecuted. I know that, that, that you're suffering and everything. But he said, you can't go back. Why? 
because Jesus is our apostle. He is the high priest. He is worthy of all of this. He's worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy of our suffering. Consider him. He's greater than Moses. What he's doing and what he has done is so much greater. Where are you going to go? You can't go back. But if they would go back just because of some persecution, Paul said, did they really have it to start with? Now, so you don't think that I am absolutely off my nut. Let me quote some of the, some of the major scholars of our times and stuff. John MacArthur, he says, endurance does not produce or protect salvation. It's not a problem, not talking about salvation there. Which is totally the work of God's grace, but endureth is evidence of salvation, proof that a person is truly redeemed and a child of God. Charles Hatton Spurgeon, one of the greatest biblical scholars of all time, he said, a simple faith brings the soul to Christ, Christ keeps the faith alive. That faith enables the believer to persevere, to go on. What he's doing in our life causes us to follow him. The blessings that he puts on our life causes us to follow him. And when difficulty comes, we don't bail out. We just keep going through trusting the Lord because he has built this faith in us. F.F. Bruce, tremendous scholar. Continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. J. Vernon McGee says, we will be faithful. This is the proof that we are of God's house. Just like the world right now wants us to go back into the world, wants us to live like the world, wants us to do what the world wants. It's just like the persecution from the Jews. They want you to go back. They think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. When I was fueling a plane one day over in Spain and, I, and one of the people that was, was on the fuel truck comes over and, and we'd partied together and everything and said, what's with you? You're not at the club anymore. You're not, you're not out drinking and partying. What? I said, you think that's kind of strange, don't you? She said, sure do. <laughs> When God saves you, there's a change. And they'll think it's strange. You can't go back. Where are you going to go? You've got to keep your eye and focused on Jesus Christ. Like the, the world like Judaism will try to bring us back through intimidation, through persecution, through promise of many things, but we must stand firm to the end, like he's saying here. Paul contrasts Moses with Christ. He compares their position, and Jesus is higher. Their faithfulness, and Jesus is more faithful. Their glory, and Jesus is glorious. Their house, and his house, is much greater than Moses. And that's why he said, consider him. I trust that when you go back tonight or tomorrow or, or whenever throughout the rest of the week, would you just sit down 
Turn everything off. Turn the kids off. Turn the wife, the husband, turn everybody off. <laughs> and just sit there in the quietness and consider him. And it will absolutely amaze you. Christ is greater than Moses. He's worthy. He's faithful. Our job is to lift him up. Our job is to exalt him. We must stand strong with Jesus Christ. We must not go back. Don't sit on the fence. Take your stand for Jesus Christ. Be all in, not halfway. All in. He is our high priest. And we owe him everything. Amen? Father, help us. Help us tonight to follow you. You're worthy. Lord, there, you've blessed us so much. Lord, help us as believers. We profess that we know you with our mouth. Help us to help our lives to match what we say. We say that we believe that men are lost and going to hell, yet we don't give anybody the gospel. I don't understand that. Lord, help us to follow you. Help us to take our stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Lord, bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.